The field of communication and media studies has become increasingly globalized. But what does this globalization mean on the ground? Taking the GRE is a prerequisite for admission into almost all PhD programs in the US. But for many people in the Global South, that presents an insurmountable obstacle, not just in resources to prepare for that, but many times in their ability to get to the cities where the GRE is administered. So has globalization leveled a little bit the playing field or does it continue reproducing inequalities of access? Of this and many other related topics, we spoke with Rachel Morau from Michigan State University in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcikowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We are truly, truly grateful to have a fabulous uh, guest with us today. Rachel Morao is assistant professor at Michigan State University. Um, she uh, did her undergraduate in Brazil uh, and uh, at, with a BA in communication and journalism at Universidad Federal do Amazonas. Then she did a master's degree um, at the University of Florida and following that a PhD at UT Austin where she finished uh, four years ago. Uh, Rachel has uh, been incredibly prolific. Um, by the time she finished her PhD, she had already published five papers. In the four years since getting her PhD, I counted 22 journal articles published uh, in top journals in the field, in many cases, multiple times in the same you know, leading outlet. 10 of those 22, uh, uh, she is the first author. Um, truly, truly impressive publication record. Um, in addition uh, to that, she has won uh, awards from the International Communication Association, grants uh, from a number of sources, and is seen, you know, and rightly so, as a rising star uh, in the fields that intersect the study of journalism, political communication, social movement, and digital media. So uh, we are really grateful to have uh, Rachel with us today. Um, and um, my first question, Rachel, is how did it all begin? You know, how was the start of the journey for you that led you to become a professor? Um, so I come from a family of journalists. So I grew up in the newsrooms. My father is a journalist. Uh, and I kind of always knew I wanted to be a journalist, although my mom was not happy about that idea at all. Um, but so I did my undergrad and I was working in the newsrooms 
And as a side job, I was a translator for Americans who come to the Amazon for various reasons, uh, which included um, a team of environmental economists. So it was a professor who became a mentor who would bring a class of undergrads through the spring term in Manaus, which is where I'm from. That's the capital of the Amazon state. Um, and uh, my sister, so this is a story that was really driven by my sister. She decided to go to this university for an exchange program in a call that the an environmental, she's an environmental economics by economist by training. Um, and when she came back, she started saying that I had to go. I had to go and I did not want to go. I wanted to just be a journalist. And she's like, oh, you have just been a year there. Until uh, her and this professor convinced me to apply for a scholarship to spend a year abroad. So that university is Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Uh, it's in a small city called Lexington. It's a small liberal arts school uh, in um, the south, the heart of the south of the United States, General Leesbury there. Uh, and I had no idea of much of US history at that time. Um, so I spent a year at Washington and Lee as part of the scholarship uh, for international students. And that really changed everything. Uh, at Washington and Lee, I had the experience of being able to dedicate myself to studying, whereas in Brazil, I was always working while I was in college. Um, so I, I, I had time to do more um, deep thinking, to do deeper thinking. Uh, and I also had uh, two big mentors, none of which is in journalism studies. So Professor Tyler Dickovic, who uh, was a political scientist, and Professor James Kahn, who's an environmental economist. And they put me in their research projects. So, you know, I had to find a way to make some money while I was living in the US. Um, so I did various research projects with, uh, with these professors. And that planted the seed of, uh, I love journalism and I liked being a journalist, uh, but I felt like my career was reaching its peak at a very early uh, age in journalism there are limitations about what can you do in the amazon and and to me move to sao paulo was as hard as it was to move to miami right if, if you're in the amazon it was not not an option um so i decided that i wanted to become an international correspondent first uh and i wanted to like potentially work for a u.s outlet covering latin america because there were no jobs for me in the amazon that i thought i liked um, so that's, uh, I, that's when I decided to do my master's. And so my master's is in Latin American studies. So a Latin Americanist view of Latin America and international communication is my concentration. So I was not all in, in the research at that point in the research side of things. So I moved to Florida uh, at uh, the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I did this two tracks simultaneously. I had a Latin American studies track uh, in which I was learning all things about politics and international communication. And then I was also mentored by Corey Armstrong on content analysis and research. So uh, instead of doing a professional project, I already decided to do a thesis. Uh, so on my second year in the master's program, I decided, well, I, I think I want to do this for a living. I will apply for, for PhD programs. So that's when the decision was made, but I think the common thread throughout the story are these key people that you meet somewhat by chance um, and they offer you opportunities that you think, well, maybe I'm not good enough for this. 
you should definitely take it. So if you're not equipped at that stage to know if you're good enough for something or not. So if you have someone who tells you you should do, you can do something and you want to do it, I think that's the common thread. So I had like my sister and two professors who saw something and they gave me this opportunity. And then uh, as I moved to the PhD, to the master's program, uh, my chair who was in sociology and Corey who was in communications who also said, I think you could, you could be a journalism professor. Um, so I think throughout the common thread throughout this narrative is that you find people in the opportunities you take, you find people that might believe in you and then you should just believe them when they believe you. So I still owe my sister a trip to Paris because she says if it wasn't for her, I would not do it. I would be stuck there covering crime. My, I, I, my master's thesis was on crime coverage and that's, that's what most journalists did that. So um, I hope she doesn't hear this. <laughs> so, um, and then, so you went straight from uh, your year of exchange at Washington Lee to the University of Florida or did you go back to Brazil? I went back to Brazil. I stayed there for a couple of years. I went back to Brazil. I worked there. Um, I worked for uh, the university in a, in a project, an environmental project as like a press person, a communications officer. Uh, and then while I was doing that, that was a very hard year because I was working. I was finishing my undergrad thesis. So undergrads in Brazil have a thesis at the end of your undergrad. And I was studying for the GRE, which to Till today, I will say it's the biggest barrier of entry for any Latin American student. And I will go against it at any committee. I, I think that's, it's a tragedy for Latin American students from Brazil have to travel to Brazilia to take a test. That's just, it, it poses so many barriers of entry. So that year I spent mostly studying for the GRE and while working and finishing my thesis. But I, I, I went back home for a while. Okay, can, can I follow up on that point? You know, there is, because of the uh, public health crisis, um, uh, you know, requirements for not only for GRE, but for SAT, ACT, all standardized testing in admissions to um, university in the US, both for undergraduate and for graduate, um, have been, you know, in question, right? Um, and, um, could you elaborate, uh, it prepares for fruitful terrain for any challenge that one might want to mount. So um, could you elaborate on, on why do you think the GRE is uh, sort of a significant barrier for people from Latin America and probably for other, from other parts of the world and puts them perhaps as a, at a disadvantage um, in the eyes of selection committees relative to people who do their schooling in the US? So I would say not only that, I think standardized tests, and there is a, a, a investigative journalistic piece that came out at the University of Texas, they were designed to keep people out of higher education in their reception several decades ago. So I think generally in the US, they pose barriers uh, as well. Uh, but for the international students, the potential international students, there are two issues, I think, access 
right? And these tests are not widely available outside of major centers. So you are, when you're requiring a GRE, you have to have someone who has the ability to go to another city if they don't come from Sao Paulo or Brasilia to take the test. Uh, which is, that's why I bring the GRE more because the TOEFL test is more widespread. I think smaller, there are more opportunities for access on the TOEFL than the GRE. But the GRE, because it's so niche, as if you think about how many people in Brazil take that test, uh, then it's in selected areas. But I, I don't know if it measures someone's ability to be a great scholar to begin with. I'm not sure those metrics are weeding out people who might do very well. Um, so it, it, I, I haven't seen studies that probably exist on the correlation between the standardized test scores and, um, and outcomes, especially in our field, that we should welcome diversity, we should welcome different perspectives. So I think that those are two, there's financial barriers. It's expensive. It's, it's like $100, which in Brazil is now 600 highs. It's not, it's more than minimum wage. Um, so it's an expensive test that requires geographic um, displacement where you need to go else, elsewhere to take it. And I'm not sure the trade-off the year that I spent studying for the GRE, could I could probably have spent that time doing something that would help me succeed in grad school in different ways. So I have countless meetings and discussions about that because I do think that's a barrier. And I have seen, I think we'll see, if we waive the GRE because of COVID, we might see more diverse applicants and dif like different cohort configurations. Oh, we'll see. I mean, in a sense, it's a little bit of a, um, you know, an experiment uh, that nobody has designed, but it will run not only in terms of entrance um, for one or two cohorts, but also what happens with outcomes when they graduate, right? Will these people will be um, of lesser, higher, same quality of a people comparable, you know, uh, students from years past? Absolutely right. But you, 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 you did. Um, you did, you know, uh, take it and you did succeed uh, with your result, I'm assuming, because you are admitted into one of the best programs in communication and, and journalism at UT Austin. Um, so, so how was your experience as a, experience as a Latin American student, um, you know, doctoral student at a place like UT Austin and then the field as a whole? Could you, could you share with us a little bit um, your journey as a graduate student? Yes, so I think as I arrived, so UT is a place that has a night center for journalism in the Americas, so it has a lot of outreach with Latin American journalists, and it has a fantastic Latin American studies program as well. Uh, so in many ways, it's a, it's a better than average place to be if you want to study Latin American uh, journalism. Regardless of that, I still think my first years, and, and my publications reflect that, uh, were very mainstream. And I don't mean that in the night, but they were about how American journalists cover elections. Because that seemed to me was the right thing to study. Um, that was what's expected of me. 
uh, or the, easy, the, the path of least resistance. So, you know, being in a place that has a center for journalism, the focuses on Latin America, that has tons of research on Latin America, I still felt that pressure. I cannot imagine if you are in a place that does not have all of those um, resources. So I think it worked, it worked well for me because it showed that when you enter the job market and you have experience in US media and Latin American media, that might be more attractive for people. But I definitely felt a pressure to uh, I entered the program with this idea that I wanted to continue to investigate how Brazilian journalists cover violence. The middle of my program, I did not investigate that at all. And I only went back to that, uh, to that research agenda, my dissertation. So everything I've done in my, in between was US journalism. Uh, I don't know if that's a common, uncommon. I don't know if it came from me. I don't know if it came from the possibilities for collaboration um in the in the program but it, it definitely now that you asked i'm reflecting i i definitely felt a push to study not just latin america not just latin america quote unquote in the field um so that's unfortunate i agree um let's continue on this so so could you tell us a little bit more how 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 was that manifested? Um, um, right, because also, I mean, there is a theme right between what you are saying about the GRE and this, which is the, the theme of in out or inclusion exclusion, right? Um, now the GRE is manifest the inclusion exclusion dynamic in the GRE is very simple. If you don't take it, you <laughs> cannot apply successfully. So you have to. But um, they, probably there is nothing like that what you're describing in terms of you know um, choosing a research area. But reflecting back on your experience as a student, how how did that manifest? I think there are various, I, I think part of it is personal um, decision of like, this is interesting too, and why not um, this other topic. Part of it is social learning. That's what everyone is doing. Um, so as a first year PhD student, you're not going to, unless you're way more talented than I am, you're not going to lead a research group. You're going to start at following being mentored by current students so a lot of that agenda is shaped by who was doing something before you got there um, the classes themselves I'm seeing a lot of positive change in uh, pushes pushes for um, syllabi to diversify which now six years ago wasn't uh, it, it wasn't something that people were talking about as much so you have the same usual suspects and all the syllabi, which really uh, were studies in the US and Europe. So you're, you're being, you're that sponge absorbing all these theories and these theories were very context specific. Uh, and I don't think as a first year student, I was um, prepared enough to make the connections that these theories could help explain. And in fact, if there are differences, this would be really theoretically insightful. Um, so because there was i was not full and not super exposed to international work in coursework 
And also because of the social element, you just start being invited to be part of these research groups and they all have a very US centric focus. Uh, and that's all peer institutions, um, Michigan State included, tend to lean that way. It seems like you have to put an effort, an extra effort to do international research. So I think, and, and that might be a lot to ask from a first year student. Absolutely a lot to ask, yes. <laughs> um, so, no, absolutely. And so, and so you said that you started, you entered the program with an idea of you know studying uh, you know subject matters in Brazil um, for the dissertation you did that but in the middle you didn't how was the transition from the middle to the I did one study yeah I did one study uh, with a colleague Magdalena Saldana on investigative journalism in Latin America mm -hmm. um, and we were we thought it was good, but we were insecure, and that was prob that's probably my best publication um, overall. And um, it was just, it, it it got awards, and so that's I think that helped me be like, oh wait, we can do this too. Um, so both Magdalena and I we were in the same cohort, did uh, dissertations on our home countries. She's from Chile. So so. So that helped. Okay, so is that is that the transition point for you? Was that the pivot moment, or you know, how, that that's one question. And more generally, how do you choose a research topic? How did you choose yours? Yes. So, uh, I think as a Brazilian, we were. Uh, so I was about. It, it was about the time for me to decide on a dissertation when a protest happened in 2013 in Brazil, and they were massive. And as a Brazilian, I knew this was unique and new, and we've never seen anything like that before. So I knew this was interesting enough to study. Um, I was also at a class, and by that point, you are a two and a half year PhD student, and you're reading all the theories about how journalists cover protests, and then you start observing that it doesn't work everywhere all the time. So I think that. Uh, that argument, the theoretical argument, was the hardest part of my dissertation is to think about what we know and is this a case and interesting enough and how it varies and how it could assist us knowing new things. Um, so the transition happened partially because I did a study in Latin America that was well received. So I knew there was an audience for it and I knew it was interesting to people, part because the case was too big to ignore in part because in talking to my advisor about it, he really emphasized that it has to be something you care about and you wanna be investigating for a year, right? I could choose an easier topic, but will I hate myself for a whole year whilst just doing this all the time? So it was important for me to find something that was really interesting and really unique. And I knew this case was unique. Like when I saw the news breaking, I knew this was different. And that, and I knew journalists there too, so I knew they were struggling as well. So it was a way also for you to reconnect uh, with your homeland, I'm assuming, um, in, you know, through your work, not only through other means, right? Did yes. So my, net, my social networks are still 
very much connected with uh, Brazilian journalists generally. Um, so, you know, I knew I knew I had means of access to data and and Rosenthal Alves from the Knight Center was also one of my mentors, very supportive, and I knew he would um, use his he would be he would trust me to use his network to conduct such project, which is important if you're doing international work. Uh, but yes, it was it was important to me to do something that related to the reasons why I did not want to continue being a journalist in Brazil, because ultimately I chose to be a researcher because the alternative was not appealing enough because it's so stressful and there's so many political interests involved and it's just so many challenges. So, you know, I, to me, it was important to think about why that happens and how we could be different. So it was a way to reconnect with my, my history, but also, yeah, my country for sure. And you have continued writing um, on this, you know, have, have a number of publications um, from this, so it wasn't just one year, so you kept working on this topic. Yes, so I, I, I try to, I have still, I have a line of research in the US, uh, which mainly focuses on US protests, but some, some stuff on misinformation and uh, political distortions, political narratives. Uh, and then I have a, a constant line of research on Brazil uh, and uh, Brazilian media and uh, Brazil, Brazilian, media, Brazilian news ecosystems and news narratives as well. So I've done, I've replicated, so, so my, the, the middle of the, the studies in the middle of my PhD program, where I study how American journalists use Twitter, I've managed to now as a professor be able to study how Brazilian journalists use Twitter. So I'm trying to balance it out uh, with when you when you get more resources, when you get the privileges of being a professor that allows you to um, balance things out a little bit more. Okay. Um, now you you've done a lot of work both in the global south and in the US, right? Um, some people say that the experience um, of the review process is very different um, in terms of where the data come from, right? Um, that sometimes there are issues of justification of context that are asked of people who present uh, findings from a country outside of the global north in Latin America or in Africa or in other parts of the global south uh, that are not asked of people who, um, or of studies actually, um, which deal with data from uh, Global North countries. Has that been your experience as well? It depends. Uh, I think it depends on the journal editor. Uh, I can definitely tell if my reviewers have no idea about Brazil because they'll ask me to rewrite the whole front end with a history of Brazil and then you don't have enough space for that. So like, oh, we don't get the context. And sometimes you get reviewers that are knowledgeable and they're reasonable in that they explain that for most audiences, this might be unclear. So, you know, add a paragraph or a footnote or something like that. So I think the front end of the paper tends to be a bigger issue because you have to take someone on a journey from I know nothing about this country to your research question. Whereas in the US, you don't have to explain if you say Trump, everyone knows who Trump is. 
so you don't have to give that background information. So space has been an issue. However, I will say uh, the worst things, the, the worst review experiences, and I think my colleagues share that because there was a panel on AHMC about it, has been publishing on uh, anti-police brutality and race issues in the United States. I think those are still at the bottom of the unpleasant review processes. So I've had, I have a replication study from my dissertation on Black Lives Matter, the content analysis. It, it uses exactly the same methods. It uses pretty much the same theories and it took twice as long because it's race and people are not, they give extra, a lot of extra reviewers. They give the piece to a lot of extra reviewers. So I think that international research still at least my personal experience still has some barriers it's easier to publish about what u.s journalists do on twitter for sure um but if you are a scholar of race in the united states and in latin america or elsewhere in the globe i think you're still going to suffer another additional layer of unreasonable un it's unreasonable um expectations there that's very interesting. And um, you have found that this experience uh, is also replicated in the work of other scholars in the field. There was a panel mm -hmm. at AJMC about it. Um, so it was good to hear that this was not just me and my co-author, uh, but also terrible to find out that it was not just right. me and my co-author. Right. And, and why do you think that's the case? I mean, there are multiple factors who could be shaping a process like this one. Um, 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 why, why do you think that is the case or what are the factors that at least that you have experienced that's relevant? So what I have experienced was that I think reviewers are scared, if you will, of um certain statements so that that makes editors send it to new reviewers so you have multiple rounds of revisions to be sure that if we say that the news media portrayed protesters related to black lives matter as negative and that has an impact on audiences for example that's still viewed as a really strong statement and we should level we should add layers of scrutiny on this I don't know what it comes from. It might be that um, people's personal um, personal beliefs and attitudes. It might be we now live in an era of attacks to researchers, uh, and that's you know a low hanging fruit. If you think about conservative media, they're always like covering studies that say Americans are racist and how bad they are. Um, so it might be external influences as well. I do think that's a really great study to compare the amount of time that certain studies take on the review process. To me, it was almost a, a, a field experiment because it was the same methods in the same, the same everything. And I did have a very different experience on, on when it comes to Brazil and, uh, and Black Lives Matter. Um, so it was, it was personally good to hear that others have faced that because when you, when you see your study going to four or five rounds of revisions with new reviewers, you wonder, is it me, right? Is, is my work just bad, but not bad enough that they don't want to shut it down? 
Um, so hearing that others shared that experience was it made us feel uh, more sure that it wasn't us. But it def there's definitely a problem there, and you should talk about it more. Right, because it does amount to a double standard that disfavors the dissemination of results on particular topics in comparison to the dissemination of comparable results in other topics, right? Because the process mm -hmm. for everything, right? Um, now, Rachel, you, um, you, you know, you are from Brazil. You work and you study and now work in the U.S. You've done research in both countries. Um, what's your experience with language? Because I hear a lot, and as a former international student myself, um, sometimes it's not easy to not only to write but to think in a language that knows, is not your language of origin. Um, uh, is you know for people who are from Latin America working in the U.S. or Canada or Europe, where the lingua franca is English, um, that that can also be another structural barrier, right? Um, um, so, what has been your experience with with language, both as a student and now as a professor? It's a learning curve for sure, uh, because you're you're immersed into this this new universe where all the readings, writings, everything is in English. And I think for me, the moment you said language, I know I'm going to make mistakes. So if I think about it too much, that's when they come, they'll come, right? You say, oh, language, there comes my accent and all the little mistakes. So if I think the worst thing you can do about language is be really self-conscious about it because that will hurt you. You have to be a little bit shameless just try and say mistakes and say bad words and it's way better than if you're hesitant the mistakes will come that's uh, this is my biggest uh concern is that as soon as someone mentions as soon as i think about this is not my first language it's it's over i will start saying horrible things and making stupid mistakes so uh, if you, as a student who wants to come to the United States, or someone who wants to move, uh, there is a level of being a little bit shameless uh, and just reading every, just Im fully immerse yourself in the language. But it is a barrier to entry, right? I would, there are many brilliant Brazilian students who would be brilliant researchers, who are brilliant researchers in universities in Brazil, but they, their work will be not known so say, for example, you're a brilliant Brazilian researcher at the University of Sao Paulo who wrote the greatest dissertation ever. You are not going to be awarded a dissertation award at ICA because the judges cannot read your dissertation. So these are issues that concern me, uh, of course. Uh, but f from a personal experience, I think it requires you to be a little bit shameless. The biggest difficulty I have is actually translating. So if I write if reading an article, in Portuguese, and then I have to write a literature review, and I have to translate that. Ugh, that's so hard. Um, so I, I, I have reading days in Portuguese and reading days in English. But if you mix and match, then it becomes a bit. Uh, translating quotes um, for presentations and things—it's really difficult. Uh, so it's best to forget a language for a while and then come back to it then trying to go back and forth doesn't work for my brain very well um do, do you think in one language or do you think in both 
Do you think in English or do you think in Portuguese? I think in both and I go back and forth. Okay. I think in both. It goes back and forth depending on what type of content I'm consuming. Okay. I have a Brazilian television and American television. And uh, my husband speaks Portuguese and English as well. So uh, we, we go back and forth, which is nice. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I've spoken with people over the years and some, even, you know, even if they speak both or three languages, say very well, they just think in one. Uh, so um, that's why I was asking. Now, evidently language has not been a barrier to you because you've been exceedingly productive. Um, what, how has been your experience on the tenure track or before that, what was your experience on the job market? Um, uh, and, and how that has continued as a uh, tenure track professor at MSU? Um, I think, and when I say that to students, they get angry, but I think the job market is not as bad as people think it is. There are harder parts of the journey, such as the comprehensive exams, that I think are more challenging. So uh, I had a, a good experience in the job market because I felt like I was prepared because I forced everyone I knew to see all my presentations and do mock interviews. So by the time they actually happened, I felt like I was really prepared because I went through several layers of peer feedback. So that, that would be my absolute first tip is to, you cannot be afraid of having someone you know and love judge you before you give it to random people out there. Um, so of course with COVID, that situation completely changes. And, uh, and I think as a field, we're gonna have to come to terms with expectations uh, because when you have one job, a year that it's uh, you're compete you're having brilliant students who are competing with assistant professors and want to move from one place to the other so that's uh, i cannot um, my job market here was really good there were tons of jobs uh everyone got jobs it was really great uh and that was uh, four years ago so this is a completely different situation but by the time i went into the job market i think um it's exciting that people want to hear about your work too. This is the first time that everyone's asking about what you do and what you want to do. Um, so it forced me to think about that. Uh, whereas in grad school, you were autopilot, right? Just doing projects and getting to research groups and getting publications and getting, trying to figure out your classes. So the job market is the first time you get to sit and be like, wait, what am I selling here? Which is a helpful process. So I had a good experience in the job market. Um, again, being shameless, I think it's really important. So Michigan State said no to my job hub at AHMC. They said, no, we're not interested. And I still apply for the job. So, you know, things, now that I know the other side, I know that this, this committees change all the time. There's so many influences that might be into that whoever was a job hub might not be the person anymore. Um, so it's important to reach out and ask questions and the things like that. Um, and then once the tenure track starts, uh, I completely disagree with people who say that being an assistant professor is the hardest thing. It's so much easier than being a grad student. You have a lot more freedom to do what you, what you want to do. You're impacting a lot more lives, which is rewarding. You have your students and you see your mentees succeed in ways that as a TA, you might not. 
Um, so I think responsibilities diversify. If you have endless committees things, and uh, and that's that's not the best part of the 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 job, but you have also a lot more freedom. So my experience, which again, it's very personal, right? I'm an institution that really values my work and lets me do what I want and trusts me when I say this would be really cool, um, which I know it's not a universal experience. Um, but I, I found that the progression from if you're suffering at the PhD program, it does not mean you suffer in the job market and it does not mean you suffer as an assistant. And I'm hoping it doesn't mean you suffer. I, I think things get easier as they should. At least they did for me, but you know, different. I don't want to, I don't want to, my experience, I don't want to, I don't mean to say my experience is universal. Mm -hmm. I mind, I'm mindful that they're very different paths. Um, but this has been, from, from my experience, I found it rewarding. The, um, the challenges became more interesting as the career progressed. That's wonderful, and it probably feeds into your productivity because if you are finding this level of of joy um, and connection with the job, then it probably is positively sort of shaping, uh, you know, how you do your research and how you write about it. Um, do you think, or have you, you know, felt that um, being a a woman from uh, Brazil, from Latin America, now living in the US, that that has somehow affected your experience, you know, in this in these early years of your professorial career as a tenure track person? Yes, of course, because it shapes how we go about life, right? Um, I think uh, a, a lot of a lot of um, examples that I use in from examples that I use in class are brazil related so all my students know i'm from brazil and i'm the brazilian person who brings up brazil up all the time i give examples about well in my home country things are this other way so that exposes them to a culture that they wouldn't be exposed uh, there are microaggressions i have not faced many at my job themselves but at conferences uh i, ha I certainly have um people saying you know, stereotypes about uh, brazilian women or hispanic women uh, or I don't know, commenting on looks and things like that. So that I think is uh, Hispanic women in particular have been sexualized a lot in American media. So uh, you you will hear some comments or microaggressions to that effect, or things like assuming you're going to be explosive and difficult because Sofia Vergara is this, this types of. Um, things happen but I, I would say not on a daily job basis but at like more conference level when you have like a lot of people together and so this you will face some of that it's important to push back but i think it's also super important to tell your mentors about it because if i said something it wouldn't be as important if as if i told steve reese who's my advisor that this happened right so if he says something about it that carries more weight. It shouldn't, but it does. So once again, emphasizing the role of mentors as people who are in your corner. If you are part of a, 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 an intersection of minorities, and then of course my experience is still infinitely better than what black women face in academia. So 
uh, being mindful of those experiences is really important. But I, I think personally, neither in my grad program or my job, I faced any of those, partially because my department is very diverse. We are overrepresented Hispanics. Uh, so we have uh, scholars from Peru and we have scholars from Mexico as well. So, you know, it helps when you have diversity. It might have been different when if you were around people who have no idea what Latin America is about. That was also the case at UT Austin, right? Because it's known for mm -hmm. a large population of uh, students and faculty from both Latinx USA and Latin America. Yes. So, you know, my experience, I've, I've been privileged in Florida, which was where I was before, mm -hmm. which also has the second largest Latin American studies, um, Center for Latin American Studies and very huge Brazilian population. So I've been privileged that the institutions that I've been part of are very welcoming of Hispanic experiences and value that. Uh, but I think we do, we should have a broader conversation because that experience is not universal. And we don't want everyone who does Latin American work to come to UT at Michigan State and Florida, right? We want them to spread. We want people to be in various places. Uh, and that's what ends up happening. Uh, you see the schools become centers for something and then everyone goes there because, you know, you want to be valued at your work. Right, right. I was going to say, that's why also in part you have experienced the microaggressions perhaps more at the larger gatherings, association-wide gatherings, etc. that at these institutions that now I realize are institutions that are particularly welcoming, uh, where there is in, in all of them a significant critical yes. mass. Okay, so, so then brings me to my last sort of questions, question in this conversation, which is that if you had magical powers right that and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication journalism media studies change what would you wish for before i tell you my wish i do think i have magical powers as an assistant professor and they're more magical than what a graduate student has and you have even more magical powers than i do uh, so I do think it's important for us to think about uh, this is not, you know, aspirational, but as things that we can do and we can do it tomorrow within the constraints of our powers. Uh, so, for example, I think assistant professors have, have enormous power in mentoring students uh, when it comes to students of color uh, and, and our, our, our very existence is such a huge magical power right our presence is so important um so we do have regular powers maybe not magical but we have regular powers and it's important for us to have this conversation about what we can do uh, within our powers but if i had you know if i had the most power uh which you know if i was like a full professor with unlimited resources it would be great uh i think i what we need to do a better job communicating and that's kind of cliche and of course as communication uh the as the field of communication should do a better job communicating it sounds insane but communicating beyond our field which means not only across disciplines i think there's a lot of duplicate work there's a lot of work that people do because they're you have to publish so fast and you don't realize that folks in sociology have already done this and maybe you should collaborate into pushing things forward and not just duplicating that. So across disciplines, uh, I 
very much enjoy the movement to talk, uh, to engage in dialogue across, beyond the field with professionals. Uh, because as I mentioned in my presentation, a major concern is that I keep saying all these things of what the media should do, but can they do those to begin with? Is it feasible at all? So we need to also communicate with that. Um, and more time generally, I think I would love to have just more time to think deeper before I have to put a conference paper together. Um, sometimes uh, it's it, 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 because of the push for productivity, we just don't have enough time to do our best work, which I'm hoping after we get tenured, you tell me we'll have time. It'll be better to not write a paper in eight months. Um, but I understand that's the. Let, let me let me uh, ask you about this. So, wh wh where where does that push for productivity come from? Is something that you hear people telling you? Is something that you infer? Is something that it's in conversations, but really nobody articulates. I mean, clearly there has been an increase in uh, expectations at every level. I mean, the, the record that you have now would have merited tenure a year ago. Um, at a research university 20 years ago, that would have been, it was, I remember when I went on the market 20 years ago, I was told, um, and it was three papers in top journals per year, uh, that amounts to 18 papers, you already have 22. Um, so a year ago, you could have come up, right? Um, so clearly it has increased, but how is that expectation of productivity communicated to you? How, how, how does it get to you? Many ways, I think, uh, generally the cycle of research, right? Everyone wants to go to a conference, so you have at least in journalism, two major deadlines. And if, you, if you're in political science, then you have three, and that's three papers a year. So, you know, to be part of the conversation, you have to produce papers fast. Uh, most, I think, junior scholars are afraid of submitting a single paper to a conference. So they'll like two to double the chances. Uh, so then you see the math quickly adds up, right? Two papers for AJMC, two papers for ICA, that's four papers a year, and you're kind of, um, so that's one. Um, aspect. I'm on a reappointment tenure promotion bylaws committee, and I don't think the documents expect that. So on paper, you can still get tenured with two articles a year. But if you talk to your peers on the field, it seems like everyone has five, six articles a year. So the social comparison is, is a factor. Um, and But I think the, the most important one is the job searches because that once you, you, you get a sense of what it takes to be hired based on who was hired before you. So then at the PhD level, you, then you have this arms race of, I want this type of job and this person before me got this job with this amount of publications. So I think that the job expectations exist. These perceptions are not accurate. Not that I've been on job searches here, sometimes, an outstanding candidate with one or two articles is better than a candidate with six or seven articles. But you tell that to a PhD student, and I was one uh, five years ago, you don't hear it that way. This is not, this message doesn't get processed. 
at least not in this large research group based institutions. So I think the job market gives you a first indication that you have to overproduct, uh, just uh, hyperproduction. Then when you enter the assistant professor, just the cycle of conferences and special calls, and you want to be part of that special issue, so you put another paper together. It's hard as an assistant professor to say no. It's very hard. So when you start a new job, a lot of people invite you to be part of that. So you see the numbers start, start piling up with that. I don't think it's a stated thing. No one told me you need the only thing that's that was told uh, me was the bylaws and the bylaws are very reasonable in most places but the social it's the social element of uh, what it takes to be relevant and, and for me as a student it, i was worried about the job and then people before me had tons of publications to get jobs and as a professor a lot of it is just the, the opportunities are too exciting to pass so i'm sure i can fit one one more paper uh, which is a problem that, that's something we should be teaching junior scholars is how to say no it's a really big problem all right so it is not necessarily stated but it's clearly felt yes i think so again within the context that i am inserted in which is i came from three research one state uh public universities uh this experience will be completely different if you got your phd from columbia and it will be completely different if you are a professor at washington friendly so you know um i'm giving you just my experiences being socialized in the big public schools absolutely absolutely thank you very much rachel this has been a super interesting conversation i have have really enjoyed uh, hearing about your story and learning from your insights um, I uh, want to thank you for your time and um, I want to invite our speakers to tune in again for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.